Good morning and a happy Thursday to you folks. Boy, today's one of those days where I feel like I just do not want to get out of bed, but it's days like this. I'm really grateful I can live in the moment. Now, what I mean by that is I really struggle sometimes with being present. I'll look at the past. I'll pontificate into the future, which... The present is actually a pretty important part of my life these days. So when I feel like I just can't handle whatever I'm in, I start thinking about things that I'm grateful for. And right now, I am grateful that I can use my two legs, get out of bed, flick the light switch on. I've got all this energy around me to make my 20 below weather very 75 degrees and nice. So I'm going to turn up the heat to 80 degrees and turn up the music a little bit and get this Thursday morning going. Now I'm feeling better, folks. It's time to play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Show. It's Thursday, folks, and it is a fabulous day outside, even though it's minus 20 degrees. and It's currently a high of negative zero. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. That nice morning. I mean, that's when you just want to be a nice, warm cinnamon bun and stay tucked into your bed like Homer Simpson on a oh, Sunday morning. Never getting up. Skipping church on a Sunday morning, being all blasphemous, being a nice, warm Well, and you saw, you remember what bun. happened to him. His house burned down darn near. That'll teach you. That was after he enjoyed the feast of maximum occupancy. <laughs> hello, work. He calls. He calls hello, work. Sick. Hello, work. All right. That is Sterling. My name is Jason Spies, and we are the Crude Life Morning Show. Play hard, work hard. And today, we've got some gentlemen on from Cabot Oil on our Swan Energy phone line a little bit later on in the program. Mr. William Bill and George Stark are going to join us a little bit later in the program. And excuse me, I had a coffee burp there for a second. <laughs> and we are, of course, in our industrial forest studios, the industrial forest studios here. It's nice in here. Great meeting with the mayor. Went well. Things are progressing. And we're going to have some more announcements on that uh, coming up next week. I don't want to get into no, details. No, I know you don't want to jump the gun there, but I'm excited. Spring's coming. Planting some, season's coming. Had some Zoom calls. Mm. With the forestry department, so we didn't have the uh, people show up physically, but we did the Zoom calls. And I didn't have to do the Zoom get ready stuff, so uh, that's okay. And I didn't have to pull out the fraggles, (laughs) so I actually participated in that. And uh, Frackleberry Hound, of course, he's always welcome with the mayor of Bismarck. I don't know if you know this or not, the mayor of Bismarck actually trains dogs. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, and it always strikes me as odd because I... Dude, I can just see an opening of industrial forest, Frackleberry, his dogs, you guys. So if you if you know Steve Bakken, Mayor Steve Bakken, mm-hmm. that's probably one of the Heck last of things name you too. think of is that he would be one of those uh, dog show type. For, of, oh, for do- I, I thought you meant just oh, like training. No, we're just, talking you know, be- like best like of show day. here. No kidding. Oh yeah, like, wow. like he goes to Greeley, Colorado every year. Yeah. And he, and he go, Greeley, Colorado has a magnificent dog show, mm-hmm. okay? And he goes there every year with his dogs. Okay, Right on, man. He, he's like um, Schitt's Creek guy, uh, uh, American Pie, um, Eugene Levy. Eugene Levy. From Best of Show, okay? <laughs> he's, like, he's like Christopher Guest from Best of okay. Show. Okay, boom, boom, boom. Okay, I'm so there. Yep. I cannot stop laughing because... 
that is not him. Well, that's not like that's like uh, you know, it's not what you might think of with him and his position as a mayor. But clearly, he's dedicated. I it's, mean, it's almost that like, takes that takes time. It's like this episode of Thirty Rock, hmm. where Jack Donaghy collects. Uh, cookie, uh, jars. Co- cookie jars, cookie jars, Vince Nightingale. <laughs> That's right. And he's got he, a fake name. He's up for CEO, yeah. and he <laughs> hires Steve Buscemi to do a background check, and he's clean except for Vince Nightingale. Vince Nightingale collects cookie jars, and he has to get them incinerated. So there's because no CEO ever collects cookie jars. Yeah. Didn't he? He ends up giving them to Kenneth or something gives like that. Gives the Yeah, one. gives the last the, one away. The rest yeah, of them a sad to thing. become incinerated. Yeah. Oh, man, that's tough. Because Rudolph, uh, Rudy Giuliani collected dolls. Now, see, I would believe that. Right? I think it was, wasn't it dolls or something? It like was. It was dolls. I'm pretty or, sure it was a doctored photo. And then, but of who course, knows? he said, oh, he doesn't do that. Of course not, because we incinerated him. Yeah. And look so. how happy he looked. I'm not sure if we made fun of Mayor Bakken or if we gave him I don't him think a pat so. I mean, back. if you think about it, it's okay. If you're training dogs and you're training dogs for shows, that takes an intense amount of dedication. So it's not like something he must just, oh, I think I'll do this for 20 minutes today. I mean, that's got to be in addition to being a mayor. He's really good with animals. So, of course, him and I hit it off. Uh, he's embraced the industrial forest. You know, he understands our uh, challenges that we're up against when. Yeah. Uh, the operators and oil and gas companies, the dozen that we've met with, have all tabled it yeah, for tabled 2021. It. So I, I have to go back at it again and get kicked down. And, and then, you know, we got to take the next steps. But we went ahead acting like it's going to happen because that's that's how we're, we're going to we're going to will and make this happen. We've just went to a dozen operators, you know, yeah. type thing. So, I mean, it's not like we've went out to the, 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 the service industry. You know, we, we just believe that if we had some of the, the big leaders and the operators, because they've got sustainability plans and ESG reports, mm-hmm. that if they embraced it and actually outside of, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. No, step up to the plate and actually show, you know, put your money where your mouth is type thing. And we haven't gotten any well, on, on, on that, but we haven't gone beyond that top tier yet. It's still, you know, I mean, it's not that it's a fresh concept. It's just making it heard. But right now, dude, I think the worm is turning because you got people like what's his name offering, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for people to come up with carbon capture technologies and things like that, which last time I checked, the best ones are trees. Not even six minutes into the show. Oh, I didn't mention them by name. All of a sudden, Sterling brings up his <laughs> favorite, his dreamy Elon Musk. I, of course, am fed up with the idol worshiping going on and the pedestaling that he Elon made me take Musk down my poster. Everything I see, where now he got a free ad from every media outlet on the planet that he's 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 opened up some new uh, <laughs> internet company out in space. Oh yeah, that's, him, him and, I see. I, I don't know what you're talking and, about. Him and you, Jason you, Voorhees. You <laughs> when Jason Voorhees became a, a Musk in space. Jason X, space the greatest Musk. Friday the Thirteenth of all time. Really, you thought that one was better than oh, number two? If you want crap, that is. Of course, is, part nine. He was a space herpy, and that one was pretty good. I liked Freddy vs. Jason myself. That's well, that really was classic. That, that see, was just, now that was actually that was good classic, though. Yeah. That, they tried on that one. Yeah. The other ones, they were like. Okay, we've got eight bucks, and we can only make... We only got 45 minutes of film time. Go. 
Because we know we're going to get this many people to show up. Yeah, Jason Takes Manhattan, I learned was later, or learned later, was filmed actually in Vancouver. Jason Takes Manhattan. Jason goes to space. I don't know how we're on Jason now. Jason was on a ship. He went to all the places the Muppets went to. How about Disneyland? Jason should have met the Muppets. Oh, my God. Now, that is the crossover Disney needs to. They still got the 13th left. (laughs) They still got one left. You know, I, I've been reading that the, that that's been kept in the chamber for something special. You know, so. oh, they're talking about wow. a big one. You, how could you in not? In fact, there's on the internet. There's a fan video. They put it together. They spliced up. I don't know how they do this, but I did watch the final Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Oh, the the, the edit, the, the fan fan video. edit. Yeah, Requiem. It's called because mm-hmm. they, they never. They just ended, but they had one more episode. That was written, okay. But because of contract dispute, they never did. Never so disputed or never over completed. the pandemic. Apparently, a bunch of fans <laughs> put together a fan video. My son watches these all the time, and he he acts like these are real movies. Well, to them, to him, they are. That's I mean, what I mean. He, he, and, and so they are because he's already seen this new. Dude, party. if you think about if you're showing him a show that's thirty some years old, think about that. At his age, the equivalent for you would have been like what, honeymooners. Oh, no. I mean, you would have had to have gone back. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Is that like... 30 years is the 80s. The 90s. Stop stop talking like that. 2021. So 40 years ago was 1981. Nothing was 40 years ago. Nothing. Did I just say that right? I don't know. 40 years ago is 1981. Yeah, that makes sense. I was told there'd be no math during the play hard portion. You're close. I know that. That I'm not going to reach for no, my calculator. That, that's actually true. No, the math works out. Okay. <laughs> wow. Back to internet. I need to get to Colorado so I can get my mind blown yeah. because that just made me feel really old and it made my, like Splash and Bachelor Party. God, I you love just you those j- okay, you just keep you just keep but digging movies, digging that hole, that grave. Those movies are are considered like old balls, man. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they just I mean, if I would have brought that up around my son, he'd probably look at me like I was older than my grandpa <laughs> who died 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's that's all. That's the trouble with any of that stuff, man. Oh, you just have to get used to it. So yesterday, we got interrupted because the bad phone was blowing up like crazy and the show had to go and you know we're trying to juggle all these different balls and I'm traveling and doing all this and that and um we're, we're okay so yesterday we got news interrupted yeah we pretty much tabled the news we had uh one from the Bakken and that was about uh some sort of legislative bill and that is available at yeah. crudelife.com on yesterday's show page talking about royalties yeah it was the royalties yeah it was Thank the royalties you. yep but you had a couple other ones. Um, do we got those? We got a yeah. few minutes. Let's, yeah, let's okay. run through those. You know, one that hit uh, got my attention. This is from Oil City News. NCSD school board may draft letter to tell Biden oil and gas ban could hurt students. So basically here, the Natrona County School District trustee Debbie McCuller in Casper, Wyoming, told other members of the NCSD Board of Trustees on Monday that she received a letter from Wyoming Superintendent Jillian Balo talking about how oil and gas dollars fund education in Wyoming. McCuller said the letter touched on how President Joe Biden's administration's oil and gas policies could impact education funding in Wyoming, and that Balo had asked that school districts have a discussion about the topic and consider, consider sending a letter to Biden discussing how they would be impacted. So is the letter being written or they're 
It, they're talking about it. Okay, so they're talking. This is about, about a day it. old. Um, Bailo said in a press release in late who, January that a ban on oil and gas leasing on federal lands would who, defund schools. Who who's who's um, who's asking for the letter? So. Where, where, where's the letter coming the from? The Board of Trustees okay, got a letter trustees. from the Wyoming superintendent. So the superintendent of all the schools okay. sent the Board of Trustees a letter saying that she recommend that they consult with the school districts, have a discussion, and consider sending a letter to Biden's administration discussing how those in districts individually would be impacted. Okay. So... You know, I think it's it's important. I mean, you think about like in Texas, for example, um, I think it's somewhere like nine hundred million dollars, you know, go, uh, goes towards education. Um, what what was the source of the story again? This is uh, this is out of Oil City News. OK, so um, this is a legitimate story. This should be uh, all over CNN. This should be all over MSNBC. Um, because this is something that goes against the grain and it goes against the narrative of where the mainstream media and uh, the the president and that whole narrative is going. And this is not some oil and gas company public relations team. This is not some podcast that's no, asking for this. These are the this people is, that are going to be is, impacted directly. This is a superintendent mm-hmm. of a school, okay? This is a superintendent of a school which is a non-political position. I have no idea if they're political or not, but it doesn't matter. It's meant to be bipartisan, they say. Right. If they're sending a letter to the Board of Trustees saying, hey, write a letter to the president, that's news. So the fact that this is another example. Could be effective, too. But this is another example of legitimate news Mm -hmm. that is not getting beyond the industry news. So oil, what is it called? Oil City USA. What's it? What's that great oil, website? Oil, uh, oil City News. Oil City News. That's a great website name, mm-hmm. but I've never heard of them. Okay. I've never heard of them. They're probably just like the crude life. Just some, you know, some, you know, blogger, podcaster. Out there doing some, research, some, making you know, contacts. Who, who did we have on yesterday? We had on Jim Willis with the Marcellus Drilling News. Yeah, and he was talking about what, like six, seven sources he checks but, every morning before he starts writing? Right, so, but my yeah. point is is that a lot of the stuff that he does, that's it. Yeah. It doesn't go beyond that. It doesn't get to MSNBC. Yeah. And what you just read is a legitimate national news story. That is a legitimate news story. So, oh, absolutely. I think this is the type of thing that really could pick up speed like nationwide where areas are going to be affected by that because it's... Uh, you know, students, schooling, everything has taken a beating over the last year. And this, they're talking about $150 million annually from, from oil and gas uh, royalties. Is right, what but this is, where, this is where Oil City News is trying to uh, use the legitimate journalism platform to advance a discussion. But unfortunately, uh, because we live in such a trigger world, a lot of people just discount it right away. Well, yeah, that's like, oh, oh, no, it's just oil. They're they're just shilling for oil companies. You know, I'm going to try to do I'm going to try to find this article on major news sites. Right. I'm going to try to find that story. All right. Let's uh, transition to the next story, because I know we've got uh, a lot to get to today. Before we get the gentleman from Cabot Oil. We didn't get a chance to talk about this one yesterday. It's a little off the beaten path, but Gorilla Glue. Have you heard about the Gorilla Glue girl, right? Gorilla Glue. 
Have you heard about the Gorilla Glue Girl? No, I haven't. Is, that, right. like, is that like from Maxim? <clears throat> no. Um, Gorilla Glue says it's very sorry to hear about the Louisiana woman who used its spray-on adhesive as hairspray. Come on. No. Louisiana woman, Tessica Brown, 40, has gone viral over the past hey, week. Lu- Louisiana woman. Woman. You got a saying. Got a little woman. So, woman. She, she's, okay, start Okay, over. so... She went viral over the past week after turning to her social media followers for help in undoing her forever ponytail. She had run out of her go-to hairspray while putting the finishing touches on her look a few weeks ago before. So she used Gorilla Spray Adhesive by Gorilla Glue instead, and now she can't get the industrial strength adhesive off her head. So it's been about a month. And uh, she's washed her hair about 15 times. Glue simply would not come off. It doesn't move. She's tried natural remedies, tea oil, coconut oil, epic fail, she said. Finally, they took her into the hospital, or she went to the hospital recently, and they were talking about um, acetone, slowly applied. But uh, it hasn't really worked yet. Gorilla Glue issued an apology, you know, not an apology, but we hope you are doing better, and basically a disclaimer saying, you know, that's not really what it's for. How many meetings do you think Gorilla Glue executives have had by Zoom or by sitting together since this went viral? I mean, in all seriousness, we talk about how the climate activists can can make control a message. Well, can make energy companies spend millions of dollars with attorneys and Mm -hmm. speculation and all this other stuff. Like I was down in the Permian before the election happened. And I was I was having coffee, and I was just kind of randomly talking with uh, an executive's uh, wife. And while we were talking, she got a text from her husband. They had to go into an emergency meeting in case Joe Biden won. And I in thought, case, in case, wow, right. And I thought, boy, everybody's just reacting and speculating. So somebody goes and they spray Gorilla Glue in their hair. And that is good stuff. Oh my word! So many different angles on this. But yeah. first one, I'm just I'm I feel right away for the poor company. Yeah. Well, they issued a you know a, a reply well, basically. I'm, they said we're aware of the situation. We're very sorry to hear about it. This is a unique situation because this product is not indicated for use in or on hair, as it is considered permanent. Our spray adhesive states in the warning label, do not swallow, do not get in eyes or skin or clothing. Now, interestingly enough, it's not in this article, but. I just read a couple of minutes ago that she's considering a lawsuit with the idea that it doesn't say hair in the message. Uh, Exactly. I'm sure some attorney has called. I bet you the next can of Gorilla Glue that comes out is going to have hair in it. Some ambulance chasing coffee lap spilling attorney. Better call Saul. I mean, yeah, right? (laughs) Where is he? Saul Goodman's all (laughs) over this, man. Or Lionel Lutz or Hutz or whatever his name was. In the McDonald's, of course, the McDonald's spilling on the lap is probably the most frivolous, famous one of all time. And the irony behind that is, is, you know, the, the person who got the coffee spilled in them was probably in the right, but not $90 million worth or whatever that was. You know, I'm figuring if it happens to you and a lawyer sits down and says, McDonald's wants to settle this, they're willing to give you $90 million, you got to go, you know, it really wasn't their fault. Or you got to go, hell yeah. <laughs> not that hot. <laughs> I, and I, I think of, too, every time I walk by the Rubbermaid container, uh, those big Rubbermaid containers yeah. that, you know, that you uh, mm-hmm. put you know, blankets or you storage things in. 
and unruly I see kids. The, the sticker with the "Do not put a baby in there." See, and, and I, you wonder why. And well, I know why. Yeah, because somebody, someone did it. Somebody put a baby in. And there. now is Gorilla Glue going to have to now? Put oh, absolutely. A do not absolutely. And it doesn't sound like it was a case of mistaken identity. Like I checked on that. Was it that just looked like her can? You know, she. How many ESG social media points does Gorilla Glue get for holding back? Because <laughs> you, you, you know, if we lived in a free speech world, their tweet or their message would be something along the lines of, we're very aware about the girl who used our product in order to hold her ponytail. Yes, yeah, Gorilla Glue works very well in construction applications and also around the household. Yeah. However, for permanent solutions, <laughs> since we've never in the history of Gorilla Glue had anyone who's ever put it in their hair, we never felt the need to put it on the product on the back saying hair. Yeah. We figured most people with adequate intelligence or above <sighs> That's would, where they wouldn't say that. That's what right, I mean. Right. At, yep. at what point does yep. Gorilla Glue just say, the stupid girl did what? Well, because <laughs> that's, that's what we're all thinking, dude. Well, yeah, and and that's why that's why you've got like a half a mile of small text on the product of everything you buy, right? So, Disclaimers. So when you when you think of why did Gorilla Glue executives have to have forty seven thousand meetings before with attorneys and executives mm -hmm. and PR departments before they issued their release? <laughs> it's because it originally started out as. What did that stupid woman do? Yeah. That's how it first started. Okay. Either that or someone in their law office ass is in trouble because they didn't put hair. But everybody knows, <laughs> well, we can't say that. Right, yeah. Because that will get us in trouble yeah. when all we're trying to say is, that dumb girl did what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's funny too because I wonder if, if they had offered to try to help. You know, if they had offered to Guidance, try to help. You want to stay away from this as much as you can. Well, you, seriously, how would you help? Uh, well, exactly. It's a liability. You, they, you recommended, a they recommended she try rubbing alcohol. I mean, <laughs> the only thing you could help is to say, well, I, we got a list of things that uh, may take our adhesive off no at, well you know it's almost like that's 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 like trade secrets no that's they like, recommended that, rubbing that's alcohol like superman say yeah. well here's some kryptonite apparently she can't even cut it she can't get a razor underneath it it's basically frozen to her head but check out this is what she normally used when she substituted the gorilla glue the normal product and this is an actual hairspray is got to be glue blasting freezing spray i'm gonna okay. have to buy some of this i have some closure here <laughs> I need I need closure. Several minutes ago, TMZ has broke the story. Oh my gosh. What's going on? Gorilla glue hairdo. I finally cut my ponytail off, <gasps> but my scalp still burns. And they've got pictures of it. And I didn't realize she um it was pretty cool looking hair, actually. She basically coated her hair with it. Yeah, she uh and yeah. oh it's just a bunch of pictures of her crying with her ponytail chopped off. And I'm not going to read the story because the headline's enough. We've covered that. I bet it was painful as heck, man, as that glue dried. Just all. Boy, I tell you. Well, it looks like our bagels are here this morning. We got some uh, Uber Eats. Man, thanks for bringing in some breakfast. Bagels this morning. So there it is. Frackleberry Hound. Trained it's a climate activist. But no, it's our bagels this morning and coffee. 
Folks, we're going to take a quick pause when we come back. Accidental inventions, because now is the time when you can accidentally invent something and make millions and millions of dollars. Do you know how I know this? It happens throughout history. Whenever these kind of these recessionary and these pandemics and all these different things happen, people, their backs are up against the wall. And this is when true innovation comes so folks stick around because accidental inventions coming up next that is sterling my name is jason spice and frackleberry hounds ready to i'm feeling all right well, i'm doing okay well, i'm here for the moment you know and then i'm on my way Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard. It's sponsored in part by... If you have natural gas leases and are looking to sell them, Swan Energy wants to talk to you today. Give them a call at 866-539-0860. That's 866-539-0860. Swan Energy is buying up natural gas leases, and they may buy yours too. Give them a call today. The Industrial Forest. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest if you're interested in sustainable forests growing industry jobs check out the industrialforest.com that's the industrialforest.com play hard work hard now let's play hard Thursday. Work hard. We are playing hard today. (laughs) Just shoveling bagels down in between commercial breaks. Bagels and coffee. I'm so hungry, man. But I'm glad that I took your advice and got some bagels uh, delivered this morning. Absolutely. Well, you know, that's one of the perks here in the Industrial Forest Studio. I know. We got a sponsor, so we feel like we're big time. We got (laughs) got bagels. bagels. (laughs) You know what we need is a a bagel sponsor. We got to feel important here. Yeah, It's working. Actually, there's a place in uh, West Fargo Mm -hmm. called Thunder Coffee, and the wife is from the Bakken. She's okay. From Williston. So right. I'm going to go talk to we her. Should see, we should get her on. And see if we can't get some coffee. For, uh, I'm just going to go get some coffee and try it and give yeah. her a little plug, I guess. Yeah, because they probably do it all themselves, I'm guessing. Hey. There's some roasters around here. So, folks, we're going to talk a little bit about accidental inventions. inventions. For those folks out there that are wondering about what are accidental inventions, well, it's just like it sounds. It's those people who are trying to invent something, and they invented something else, but it took off. And what the heck? They went with it. Off the top of my head, there's a couple that stand out. But here's here's okay, here's one that we probably have all played with, but probably didn't know. Play-Doh. 
Play-Doh, the inventor Joseph McVicker, head of, was it Kudal? Kudal Products Company? I've never heard of them. Anyway, it's a soap manufacturer out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Soap. soap. In okay. the early 1950s, Kudal created a doughy clay to remove soot in coal-burning homes. But the Christian Science Monitor reports people soon switched from coal to gas to warm their homes. And the company was headed towards bankruptcy. Boy, doesn't this sound familiar? This is it, this this could have been written last year. Could have been, or, or this. I mean, year really, right now. it's like insert. Yeah. Actually, you're right. Last year with Cole. Uh huh. Frackleberry Frack- Hound. As she picks out her, her loudest chewy paw. Chewy paw toy. Yet she, of course, waits till we hit record before she goes over there and starts picking them out. Seriously, I don't think it would be quieter if the elk was attached to it. Still, such a diva. Yeah. So how was it creative, Play-Doh? McVicker learned that his school teacher's sister was using the dough modeling clay in her classes. Eureka, she said. It was a toy, not a cleaning product. <laughs> By 1957, colored Play-Doh was sold at Macy's and hawked on kids' TV shows, turning the creators into millionaires. Facing bankruptcy, they took a step back esoteric energy baby we need to take a step back because coal is being transitioned to natural gas in 1950 1950 cent you know 50 what i wonder people who are too young to know what 50 19 not 50 it used to be when i would say 50 the old people would say what do you mean now i say 50 cents People are like, what? What? What are you talking about? That's because you're the old people I now, know, man. That's Sorry. What, I'm what I want to know is, can Play-Doh still be used to remove soot? I'm gonna have to try this at home. I'm not t- quite sure, but give it a shot. Yeah, I'm gonna try it, man. You got another one, or you want me to give you one? I'm, I'm finding some really interesting ones here. What do you got? Well, check this out. In 1907, a Belgian chemist, Leo Bakeland, was trying to find a replacement for shellac. That's an expensive resin secreted by South Asian beetles, when instead he produced the world's first plastic. By combining formaldehyde with phenol, which is a waste product of coal tar, and mixing it in other materials, Backland accidentally created a non-conductive and heat-resistant polymer that is used pretty much in everything you see around you right now. A paragon of modesty, he named the plastic Bakelite in honor of himself. You know what else is a derivative of coal tar? Apparently, saccharin. Fake light. Bake light. Bake light. Bake light. Okay. Bake light. Okay. So I remember in the, or I don't remember, but about the 1940s or so, you started to see it started to come into use. And then by the 50s, and, and that's when you really started to see a transition away from glass and wood and leather and the more traditional uh you know, products for, for everything from the actual container for the product to how you shipped the product, mm-hmm. right? You went from the wooden crates to now the Bakelite crates. You went from the glass to the, you know. So interesting. And then uh, another thing that came, a derivative of coal tar, saccharin. First artificial sweetener happened because a chemist, a Russian chemist, Konstantin Falberg, forgot to wash his hands. In 1879, after a day spent reacting coal tar with phosphorus, ammonia, and other chemicals, he realized at home that his hands tasted sweet, sweet and low. That's how it was born. Wow. That's cool, man. You know, I'm starting to see a pattern here between derivative fossil fuel products. That's why 96% of what we rely on comes from fossil fuels. Yeah. This is, what else you got? Popsicles. That was an accident. What? 
An 11-year-old. What, snow? An 11-year-old named Frank Epperson invented popsicles in 1905. Epperson was chilling out in the back porch in his family home in San Francisco. In a very fortunate case of playing with food, Epperson was stirring powdered soda. Because <laughs> that usually doesn't end well. <laughs> right, in water and a stick. He went inside for the night, but left the cup outside with the stick. The next morning, as Gizmodo writes, Gizmodo writes. Gizmodo. It's Gizmodo. Is it Gizmodo? It's Gizmodo. Epperson writes, he discovered the sweet icicle on a stick. He named the invention after himself, the Epsicle. The Epsicle. Wow. He, that didn't last long, didn't, did it? It's like the Studebaker. <laughs> and no. I love Studebaker, man. That's a great name. Uh, later, the kids called it Pops Ickles or Popsicles. Popsicles. So he made them later for his friends uh, when he was older. And anyway, so that's where Popsicles came did from. Did he actually profit from that invention? I mean, did he go on to trademark it? I mean, did he sell it? Is it? Does it say? In 1923, he applied for a patent, and okay. the Popsicle was properly born. Beautiful. Saving overheated Americans... But uh, you know, um, and that was in, to come. now that's odd in San Francisco that that that's where that you know it wasn't Fargo, North Dakota. It was San Francisco. Right. But I'll tell you, the uh, coldest winter I ever spent was the summer I spent in San Francisco. Isn't that the truth? Well, here's another accident: the slinky. <laughs> you would have think that would have been on purpose, right? Yeah, I think so. Or that somebody playing with a spring or something. See, that's along what those I always lines? figured, right? Some sort of the spring from a car. Well, the inventor was Richard Jones, a naval engineer. What he was trying to make in 1943, he was trying to design a meter to monitor power on battleships. Hmm. Interesting. That's yeah, okay. How it was created. Jones was working with tension springs when one of them fell to the ground. It kept bouncing from place to place. It hit the floor. And there you go. The slinky was born. Wow. Okay, here you go. You know about you know vulcanized rubber, right? 1839, none other than Charles Goodyear accidentally dropped a mixture of rubber, sulfur, and lead onto a hot stove. I'd really like to know what the story was. Was he cooking something else up? I mean, what was the intended product? The mixture hardened but was still usable, and the world finally had a durable rubber resistant to both heat and cold. See, if safety regulations would have been what they are today, we would have never got vulcanized it's the rubber. Ron Swansons of the world out there inventing things, man. Check this out. Now, last, last one He's on oil. wood burning stove directly below <laughs> all like, a gas can of soaked rags. Soaked, which every, every garage needs. So Rich and Robert Cheesebro was looking to strike it rich in the oil fields, but in 1859, Cheesebro. Oh, Burrow. Okay. Burrow. I said cheese bro. <laughs> it kind of, it's B-R-O-U-G-H. Burrow, so, yep. yeah. He noticed workers complaining about rod wax, an annoying waxy substance that gummed up their drilling equipment. Cheese bro called it Vaseline. Come on, you're making this up. He used it to treat cheese cuts and burn, and he even ate, wax? he ate a spoonful of the stuff every day. Spoon? Come on, <laughs> what are we getting at here? You and your crazy words like napkin. Exactly. What, what is he? Uh, what did he do? What did he invent? He invented Vaseline. Oh, from okay. drilling oil. It was stuff that it was a residue that gummed up around the drilling equipment, and he removed it. Realized it was a good lubricant, and you know, at 1859, Pansia potions and snake oil. He basically thought it cured everything. <laughs> what was a rod wax? 
I'm going to have to look that up. Okay. That, yeah. Because my first Google search brought some really interesting results. I mean, results. it's Thursday, so... I'm, yeah, I'm going to have my, to dig in on my this My mind's <laughs> pretty much in the gutter already. So is Bagels. Because I'm traveling. So, anywho. Well, here's one that you may not know that was an accident. Hmm. Coca-Cola. Really? Did you know Coca-Cola was an accident? John Pemberton... P-E-M-B-E-R-T-O-N, John Pemberton. Pemberton. He was a pharmacist. Living in Atlanta in 1880s, Pemberton sold a syrup of wine and coca extract he called Pemberton's French Wine Coca, <laughs> which he touted as a cure for headaches and nervous disorders. Uh, so it started out as a... As a nerve tonic. Yeah, nerve tonic. In 1985, Atlanta banned the sale of alcohol. So Pemberton created a purely coca-based version of the syrup that could be mixed with carbonated water and drank as a soda. The result was the perfect beverage for a temperance era, a brain tonic called Coca-Cola. Now, I have heard that it had cocaine in it at some point or a cocaine derivative of some kind. That's what I've heard as well. Uh, Opium or I don't know. Here's another one that I did not know as well. Remember how uh, one of our first shows we talked about like the origin of chocolate chip cookies? I do remember that. And and, and we wondered about that. We kind of wondered, what do you mean? Somebody invented that? Like, Mm -hmm. hasn't that been around since scrambled eggs? Yeah, it seems like something that just sort of everybody stumbled upon one day, right? But, But there was an inventor and it was by accident. And it was Ruth Wakefield, the owner of Toll House Inn. Toll okay. House Cookies. That's I'm where, seeing where this is going. I, all right. right. Yeah. Foreshadowing here. Woo-woo. What she was trying to make, she just wanted to make some chocolate cookies. While mixing a batch of cookies in 1930, Wakefield discovered she was out of Baker's chocolate. As a substitute, she broke sweetened chocolate into small pieces and added them to the, cho- the cookie dough. She expected the chocolate to melt, making chocolate cookies, but the little bits remained intact. That is amazing. Like, so just total accident. Just a So chocolate chips probably came because of her. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Like she broke them in. Other, yeah. Before it was just the bricks that you see, and then they, you mixed it in there, and then the chocolate took over the whole color of the cookie. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I didn't realize that. And it, you've had both, I assume, and there is a real big difference between a chocolate Huge chip cookie and a chocolate cookie. Chocolate chip cookie may be my favorite yeah, dessert man. of all time. I know. And, and last time we talked about it, now I want a cookie. It's the perfect one. Did you have another one here ready to go? Uh, let's see. Okay, here we go. While experimenting with cereal recipes in 1895, Will Keith Kellogg forgot about some boiled wheat he left sitting out. The wheat became flaky, but Kellogg and his brother cooked it anyway. The resulting crunchy and flaky material became a cereal you may be have heard of called cornflakes. I think they also used it for heat shielding on the shuttle. I think they did as well. (laughs) Another popular food that was accidentally invented is potato chips. Now what? Accidentally invented was potato chips. Okay, I got to hear about this. George Crum was the inventor, a chef at the Cary Moon Lake House in Sarasota Springs, New York. What he was trying to make. All right. Crum was trying to serve a customer French fries in the summer of 1853. The diner kept coming in, sending his French fries back. He wanted them to be thinner and crispier. <laughs> Crum lost his temper, temper, sliced the potatoes insanely thin, and fried them until they were hard as a rock. And to ha. the chef's surprise, the customer <laughs> loved them. The potato chip was born. Oh, man. <laughs> well, here's another happy accident. 
John Hops, an electrical engineer, was trying to conduct research on a hypothermia. Okay. He was trying to use radio frequencies to heat and restore body temperature, but what he created was the pacemaker. No kidding. Yeah. How did that? How does that even come about, man? See, these are the types of things that I wish people would get more uh, education on because yeah. it excites the mind. Well, it, it what, it's, what it tells what it tells kids and it tells adults is it's okay to screw up because what well, your screw up just might reinvent America, just might reinvent the planet, reinvent the world, the, man. the world. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of well, potato chips that reinvented America. And their belt buckle. Come on, man. <laughs> Pacemaker reinvented the world. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, uh, it, the most famous accidental discovery of all. Uh, Silly putty? It, penicillin. Oh, yeah. That was, wasn't it? The yeah. guy left it out or something? Sir Alexander Fleming was experimenting with the influenza virus in 1928. God. 1928. I thought it was older than that. When he left for a two-week vacation, he returned to find that a mold had contaminated his, his staphylophic Koskis cultures butchering that but more importantly he found that the bacteria was unable to grow anywhere near the mold and that moment of sloppiness which resulted in the invention of penicillin would change medicine forever now you wonder it's like it probably would have come about but maybe not i mean that connection i mean that accidental connection it suggests that eventually somebody could have come to that conclusion through the normal process but what if he hadn't taken that vacation and it's so <laughs> fun to do the sliding doors and i love doing that yeah, you know the too. speculation yeah, yeah the what if but i've stopped doing that in the last few years and i started going backwards and saying okay huh. let's let's reverse our life forward here and what i mean by that is Okay, oil and gas. Not to bring it home to oil and gas, but I'm going to do that because sure. this is an oil and That's gas That's an oil and gas show, man. That's what we do. There's a president and a party and a movement trying to transition our lives out of oil and gas, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. Maybe might happen in my son's lifetime. Maybe, probably not, okay? Because I truly think oil and gas are going to be around for the foreseeable future yeah i okay? think that's the reality because, yeah that's the that's just the life that we have i think that's i think if you want to look at facts so with, with that being said <clears throat> um all right now see now i lost my train of thought and it's uh, the bagels this morning are just getting me going <sighs> penicillin so thank you for bringing me back and actually, the bagels even would, would represent this with the donuts. <laughs> That's the last everything bagel I get you. With the bagels took out donuts, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. So they're trying to get renewables to take out oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Penicillin took out the magic amulet and the leech people. Right. So that's what we had for medicine before that yeah. was the magic amulet and the leeches. But that was the consensus science, what people thought worked and, and, and yeah. you know, yada, yada. Yep. And then that, but that was a quick transition. Okay. Because people were like, oh, well, that shit works. Oh, well, so man. Forget the leeches. Forget the magic yeah. amulet guy. Let's do this. You figure from 1928 on when he invented penicillin by accident, you figure the mortality rates started to immediately go down around the world as soon as penicillin started to get into general use. So I'm wondering if this acceptance of fossil fuels, or I mean, sorry, the acceptance of uh, a green energy mm -hmm. is going to like have a reverse effect. People are going to be like, uh, no, we need to go back to the way it was because... We were sold a bill of goods on this stuff. All right. Well, you heard it yesterday. Jim Willis talking about the rates are going up and people yeah. are starting. Well, it, it's a real thing now because it's so cold. Yeah. And it's, and it, God, man, Germany. it just, yeah. 
coming yeah. back. And you, you saw the news story yourself. Yeah. Things aren't like they said it was. And so the problem is, is that the speculation is now being put into practice and the hypothesis is not matching what they said it would. So anyway. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a ping pong couple of years, I think, man, just did, bouncing forth. Did you mention uh, uh, microwaves were an accident? Yeah, microwaves. So that's pretty cool. Uh, let me you see. You got that one handy? Yeah. I got that on my list too, but you go ahead. Oh, okay. If you want to, Because I'm, I'm going to do LSD as a drug. LSD was that was, a, was that an accidental thing? That's you, a happy accident. Go for it. <laughs> no, go no, for it. Okay, go I'll for go it. for it. All right. <laughs> go for it. Uh, Albert Hoffman, he's a chemist. He was, uh, okay, this is great. He was researching a different form of acid in the, well, I don't know how to pronounce that, in a laboratory in Basel, Switzerland in 1938. Okay. Hoffman unintentionally, yeah, right, yeah, right, swallowed a small amount of LSD while researching its properties. He subsequently had I the gave first the same excuse acid in trip in history, making the entry of, a, of that drug that would become a staple of the underculture of the most significant uh, Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And it was legal for a time, right? I, I remember, or not remember, but I remember reading in like the 60s, it was still legal. This is something though, and I do remember this on, on a lot of the research I've done in Steve Jobs, and I have done a lot. The psychedelic uh, had its mark on tech too. Steve Jobs said that taking LSD was one of the two or three most important things he's ever done with his life. And I've, I've read that and I've heard interviews where he talks about how LSD and acid brought him past so many roadblocks in his life mm -hmm. that allowed him That's interesting. to move I had no forward idea. in areas that he would have never felt comfortable yeah, otherwise. I had, I had no idea about that. Yeah, and he was pretty him. vague about some of the, some of the things. But right. when he was talking, I'm going, oh, okay, I understand exactly what Well, definitely, about. if somebody like Steve Jobs says it, it makes you go, okay, well, it, I guess that's worth reading more about. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you have the microwave? Yeah, microwave. Okay, that was invented in 1945 when a Raython engineer named Percy Spencer, finally a name that's easy enough to pronounce, was fiddling with energy sources for radar equipment. Then he realized that the chocolate bar in his pants was melting. <laughs> so basically invented microwave slash pocket fondue. Um, my, my guess is that's probably how the x-ray was invented too. <laughs> something along those lines. You know, it's, it's funny. Oops. I remember the first. I can see through that guy. <laughs> Anyways, what? You, I remember the first microwave my parents had. It was, you know, it was like three feet by four foot. It was cut out of granite. Um, yeah, you it, know, was, if it you, was the size of an oven. Yeah, if you stood in front of it while it was working, oh, boy. you know, you started to twitch, you know. Well, that's where the pacemaker stuff was real. Yeah, like, yeah, because it would it would produce so much nuclear energy that yeah. if you had like one of those old school pacemakers yeah. that, you know, could pick up a radio frequency, <laughs> that type of thing. You know, they have a safety on them, right? So that they won't go on. I bought one cheaply from an old restaurant that worked with the door open. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I thought for a second, maybe I'd get superpowers, but instead I just got rid of it. <laughs> well, all right. So let's do I got one more for you here and then we'll. Get to the next step here. I'm sorry, not the next step. The, the next segment, our news segment. But news. So, of course, many of you probably know about Teflon, right? Teflon. Teflon is, you don't stick. But that, that was an accident. So Roy really? J. Plunkett. Plunkett. He was working at the DuPont company in 1938 researching refrigerants, which helped to supply air conditioning to refrigerators. When he noticed some of his gas had turned into a white powder. After some testing, Plunkett concluded that the substance was heat resistance on low surface friction 
giving it the perfect uh, property what we see today. There's oh, so, a coding for things, huh? Teflon. All right, here's the last one. This one's good. But I'm bum. Champagne accidentally discovered. Champagne? This might be the happiest surprise of all. Right, this is beautiful. I do like a good champagne. And I've got expensive taste when it comes to champagne, folks. Because they lived in such high altitudes, the monks of Champagne, because remember, in order it's, to be Champagne, you have to come from Champagne. Right. Otherwise, it's an actual region. You're it's, Champlain or you're Zampain. All right. Champagne has uh, plenty of access to the best grapes. The problem, when the temperatures plummeted in the colder months, the fermentation process on the wine would stop temporarily. And when it began airing again in the spring... There would be an excess of carbonated dioxide in the wine bottles. Build up, yeah. Which would give them uh, an unwanted carbonation for the wine. So if if you didn't want that, pew, what's this pish posh? Right. There's no tannins. Can't taste the. <laughs> oh, God, you used the tannins word. I don't so, know any other wine I think words. that's the only one I've ever heard, too. In, in 1668, the Catholic Church decided that it was time to handle the situation. <laughs> so they brought a French monk named Don Perignon. You're kidding me. Over to Champagne to fix the fermentation problem. Man, this is too good to He's be like true. He's like the wolf yeah. from uh, Pulp Fiction. Right, they bring him in. <laughs> they yeah. kind of come. Yeah. Is yeah. that his name? The wolf? <laughs> the wolf. Harvey yeah. Keitel. Yeah. <laughs> or, We're Got a body in a trunk. Newman, when they had the extra stumps from the from the muffin business, comes in with his milk. All right, so Don Perignon apparently fixed the problem by marketing the shit out of it, charging four hundred bucks a bottle. Donahue Estates, man. Bravo, baby! You just figured out the pet rock in a hey, best that was, way possible. That was the pet rock of the sixteen hundreds. That's brilliant, man. And you know, and now it's 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 revered at the most sacred and honored ceremonies. It's the most special drink. There's just a couple other ones too. Chewing gum was by accident, as well as dynamite was by accident, which I think would have been absolutely hilarious to have been around. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Matches by accident. Matches. And of course, Viagra. Viagra was supposed to be a heart medicine, but instead it got the blood pumping. Now that must I want to read the study report on that first they're, you know, where they're doing like the first group study, but like, okay, well, it seems to be helping the heart, but well, I'd give you my version, but it's got, you know, some pictures that may intimidate you. So <laughs> better just, uh, go you know, you know what else was a nice accident? Yes. According to my mother, me. Oh, look at that. <laughs> More mistake. It sort of depends on the too. day. Folks, we're going to take a brief pause and we come back here. Some news to finish out our Thursday here. Oh, before we talk to the gentleman at Cabot Oil and Gas, the fourth largest natural gas company in the United States, George Stark, William DeRosse, right here on the Crude Life Work Hard, Play Hard Morning Show.
The Crude Life Play Hard, Work Hard is sponsored in part by... If you have natural gas leases and are looking to sell them, Swan Energy wants to talk to you today. Give them a call at 866-539-0860. That's 866-539-0860. Swan Energy is buying up natural gas leases, and they may buy yours too. Give them a call today. The Industrial Forest. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the Industrial Forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Welcome back to the Crude Life Morning Show. Play hard, work hard. My name is Jason Spies. That is Sterling. It is time for some news here. By the way, we don't, I don't think the last segment we mentioned our sponsor, Titan Solutions and Great American Mining Company, two separate companies. Titan Solutions out of Colorado. They do work in the Permian, the Bakken, the DJ, also in Wyoming. They're into the uh, bioelectricide, too, where they spray and disinfect, and they've got sanitation stations as well. Links available at thecrudelife.com. Kind of a one-stop shop. Great American Mining Company is the other sponsor. They are into emission management, diverting flared gas into Bitcoin. Such a cool idea. I know. It's so awesome. We got to get him on again. Awesome. And and want to get some of that money cake. If you're a mineral owner, they've got a calculator at their website. Links available at thecrudelife.com. Where you can ch- uh, check how much money you'd make in Bitcoin. You know, especially with... Uh, or if you're an operator. In dips and reductions in royalties that we've been reading about recently in different states, that might be a really good solution as a alternate form of revenue. When I said that I truly believe 2021 may be, and quite frankly, could be defined by defection, these are the stories I'm talking about, mm-hmm. where it's you have all this like inner fighting now that's happening, because... It's the way it goes, man. Times are good. Everyone's happy. Times get rough. Oh, boy. They get real rough. So, Well, it seems like uh, people sort of circle the wagons, you know? You start to see less people uh, wanting to talk openly. Well, let's get our news started here. Well, let's start with that. This is from the Herald Star. Panel discusses economic future of oil and gas. Panel? Panel Panel of experts from the think tank... Ohio River Valley Institute discussed the oil and gas industry and potential cracker plant at Dilly's Bottom last week. Full-on cracker plant, huh? (laughs) An organization affiliated with an environmentalist group says it soon will produce studies suggesting that the oil and gas industry is on an economic decline 
and that a proposed ethane cracker plant should not become a reality in eastern Ohio. Panelists from the Ohio River Valley Institute, a think tank focused on lasting job growth, clean energy, and more inclusive civic structures for northern Appalachia, held a discussion Wednesday. Speakers at the forum included Catherine Hipple, professor of finance at Bard College, blah, 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 blah. So what they should do is go to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania just passed a law last year, Act 66, I believe it's called. I'll ask the guys coming up on Cabot Oil and Gas here in the next hour in our play hard portion, work hard portion, excuse me. Um, Pennsylvania has a thing where if you invest a certain amount of dollars, so you got to bring money to the table. Yeah. But on the back end, they give you all kinds of incentives and tax breaks and, and that sort of thing. I love that idea because they work with you once you get it going instead of just giving you all the stuff up front. Right. You know, and I wonder if that might not help because I know it's for natural gas processing plants in Pennsylvania, and that's just right across the border there. Well, Sean O'Leary, senior research at the Institute, the Ohio River Valley Institute, said their topic was whether the Shale Crescent, region of Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania, will realize the promise of economic renewal or if it's on the verge of failing. So it seems like they're trying to make the case that since it's in decline and since it were in a transition, that it doesn't make any sense to open another cracking factory. But apparently also there has been an influx over the last couple of years of plastic manufacturers and expectations of jobs based on having additional hydro generation plants, uh, more cracker plants. And they're supposed to have three. They've got the one. So, you know, it sounds like they're making the argument that because oil and gas is in the decline, we shouldn't continue to fund economic renewal in the territory. In the state of Washington. Does that make any sense? In Washington state, they did a study for the Anacortes refinery. Okay, it's a refinery in the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that, and this is, again, this is kind of rough numbers here. I believe it's 12 jobs for every one job that the refinery has. So if the refinery has 100 jobs, they're going to have 1,200 jobs in the community. Okay? Frackleberry hound found her. Or, what is that? That's a deer tie. I hope time. that. I mean, it looks like it came from an elephant. All right. So what they found in the state of Washington study with the... Uh, I think Ana, Ana, Anadarko or Anacortis, I think it's Anacortis, is that it's 12, 12 and 1. And I knew this from the Davis Refinery guys, interviewing them because they use that study to sell the people in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And that's a real deal, man. I mean, refinery is a big job. That's a real job. That's I mean, you're talking about wages. Yeah. You're talking about real family wages here. Not working at Subway. No offense, Subway. No. But well, uh, you know those blue collar jobs we talk about. You know, Subway the, and producing twelve jobs the, off the, of the coal miner, the the yeah. Detroit you know line worker at the factory. I mean, that's in a lot of ways oil and gas is sort of the last bastion of that kind of environment where you could get in at a ground level, you can come up with a better vibrating pipe, you mm-hmm. can start your own business, you can move around. I mean, you know, it gives you that kind of same flexibility. So uh, that's a shame m- that they're they're looking at it in that way that. Oh, we're on the decline with the mood of oil and gas instead of looking at it like, hey, 
you know, natural gas ain't going anywhere. Well, for you know, a long time. Oil might change, like yeah. the whole concept of crude oil, but natural gas is only going to get more and, and more. And what we were talking about, uh, you know, with with Important. Pennsylvania and New York and having to import gas from Pennsylvania into New York, you know, as a way to make up for the shortfall because of the what banning basically of it, right? New York, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, okay, try to... I'm just trying to square that. How does that end up helping? It's, it's, Isn't that robbing Peter to pay Paul? It helps the political party. No, I understand that. But, I mean, like, I I don't even understand what the argument is that's supposed to convince me this is a good idea. I just said it. It helps the political party. Well, that's not for me. I mean, that's for the political party. No, but, but you see, the political people... They believe it does help them. Mm-hmm. I think it reinforces so, a, a division between people, and that's what they exploit. Anybody who is watching these debates and everything, so anybody who says, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, mm-hmm. they believe that the people on TV and at, on the Internet and everything actually are talking to them. They're not. Yeah. They're no. not. No, it, that's not their audience. They're talking about their circle, and that's it. Yeah. That's it. So you know, it kind of it kind of makes It kind of makes me want to run for office as a Democrat. Yeah, soapbox it. Okay? Just so that I could be a sane, rational voice, because that's where you're actually going to start to get some movement and get things, make things better, you know? Spoken like <laughs> the, the the true words of every politician who started out. I'm going to be the sane voice. <laughs> and then they realize once they get in there, okay, the sane voices lose. I'm out of here, man. I, I feel totally comfortable being able to defend any argument against an environmental activist. Absolutely. What do we got for another story? Let's go to the next one. All right. Okay. Let's see here. So dropping in here a little bit. This is from the, this is from Reuters. Okay. Biden drilling ban forces democratic led New Mexico to reckon with oil dependence, which is basically what we were talking about with New York and Pennsylvania. What was the headline? Biden drilling ban forces democratic led New Mexico to reckon with oil dependence. Okay, that's a paragraph. That's yeah, it's it's a little mouthy. It's not a headline. It's right. a paragraph. Yeah. But okay, I'll, I'll let it slide just because it's it's done with. It's online. It's over with. What's, when what, when what Stan Rounds about? heard about U.S. President Joe Biden's plan to suspend new drilling on federal land to fight climate change, he worried about the education budget. Man, we're starting to see a theme here, aren't we? Rounds head a state association of school administrators. He knows that New Mexico, home to the county's richest oil fields, are on federal lands, depends heavily on drilling revenues to finance a struggling public school system, and budgets have already taken a hit from the falling crude prices and pandemic-sapped global fuel demand. So he says, while you appreciate the green policies for environmental issues, you can't strangulate the revenue streams in New Mexico, says Rounds, executive director of the New Mexico Coalition of Educational Leaders. So we're very concerned. I bet you if you were to poll the teachers in that state, you would find, you know, maybe a 60-40 or a 50-50 split between, yes, I care about the environment and and, and no, I'm, I'm against the environment or vice versa. But none of them would disagree with this statement. That if you start cutting off revenues, you are going to lose the schools. You're going to lose the educational benefits. So New Mexico's money troubles reflect the dangers facing oil-dependent economies around the globe at a time when volatile petroleum prices, rising concern about climate change, pushes governments to transition to a cleaner energy source. What was the headline again? Oh, God, you're going to make me read it again. Biden drilling ban forces Democratic-led New Mexico to reckon with oil dependence. So... 
Do you see how that headline just turns off people? Yeah. And the rest of it's actually some serious stuff. Well, it points to an inconvenient truth that could undermine Democratic President Biden's promises to enact sweeping policy changes to address climate change because you're getting politicians in Democratic states like New Mexico who have to reckon with that. So it's a clash against the, you know, the progressive ideal and activism. And it's that's where it meets the road. This but, is where But this is where I think it can, this is where I get so irritated because the the story is the Democrats are using education as a political tool then. Or the Republican whoever's using education, it's being used as a political tool. It says says it right in the headline. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it, you know, each side, they, they, it's push and pull. You know, whoever's in charge gets to screw around with the education systems. But this is just the facts. I mean, that's 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 the thing is it's like, okay, the Native American um, uh, leases that were going to be grandfathered. Remember, we read about mm-hmm. this, right? So, so you've got those. Now you're, I think you're going to start to see a splintering of these different states going, okay, well, we can't do that because otherwise we can't fund our public schools. There are... A handful of states, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, uh, New Mexico, North Dakota, and maybe Texas to some degree, I doubt it, but maybe Texas. But those other six I named, because of the the federal ban, they're going to be impacted, okay? The rest of the nation's not so much. The, 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 there's only 10, 15% of oil reserves on federal, okay? But the Western states are going to get hit hard. Now, those Western states, their governments have become extremely reliant on those oil and gas taxes, Mm -hmm. okay? The production tax and that sort of thing. So what I'm getting at here is that when they start infusing politics into education, that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I, it, what the story should be about is that, yes, Biden's administration did this, and this is the impact, not, oh, what are the Democrats going to do? Mm-hmm. What do you mean, what are the Democrats going to do? Yeah. How are the Demo- are the Democrats not sticking up for the kids? Well, it, and it, it's like that story we just talked about from Wyoming, you know, the school board, right, yeah. where they're talking about it. So I'm starting to see a pattern here where... What, reality's it, setting in or what? Well, on a more fundamental, concrete level, local municipalities are starting to look around and go, okay, we're already getting shafted because of global prices, which thankfully are coming back up. Yeah. And now we're going to have to account for 150 to several hundred million dollar windfall. Because or not windfall. Because <laughs> of politics. Yeah. So, and that's the thing that that's just drives me crazy about this stuff is this whiplash back and forth, back and forth. Every couple of years, regulate, deregulate, regulate, deregulate. Man, I think Frackleberry Hound agrees with me. She is just out of control today. I'm going to buy her a Thor's hammer. I, I saw a, a Thor hammer. It'd be perfect for her. It's like a chew toy. So, All right. But it's becoming very clear that a lot of leaders over the past four to six to eight to ten years have been extremely cavalier with other people's lives. Oh, yeah. That's what that story says to me. Well, because on either side of the argument, you make the case for the greater good, right? I mean, that's that's what any side of the other side of your, whoever you're arguing with I is I always walk away when someone says that. Because the greater good. For whose greater good? Yeah. Who, yeah. Whose good is it? Exactly. I mean, yeah. yeah so anyway. Yeah. 
Well, that's going to do it for the news segment here today. And we got the guys from Cabot Oil coming up next on our Swan Energy phone line. Of course, we'd like to thank our sponsors today, Titan Solutions, Great American Mining Company. And, of course, our studio sponsor, the Industrial, Industrial Forest. Forest. Also, U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer still coming up a little bit later with our daily show update on the radio. It's our Crude Life Daily Update on the radio here at the podcast. Capital Oil, guys, coming up next. That is Shirley. My name is Jason Spies. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a good one. Music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. Crude Life with Jason Speece. Thank you for joining the program today. If you want to look at America, you go to Permian and the Bakken, and, and that's what America should be, united as one. And that's exactly what we are. And, and then, you know, that's what I love about the oil and gas industry. One county in Kansas, one single county, produced 9% of the world's oil. That was an oil that won World War One, As the British said from the floor of Parliament, the Allies floated to victory on a sea of oil. Works picked up here in the Permian Basin. Yeah, leadership really needs to take a look at how we've been doing things and constantly make changes in how we can do things better. Commodities are always, 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 any commodity business, whether it's milk or whether it's oil or whether it's apples, they always are boom or bust because the solution to low prices is high prices. The solution to high prices is, you know, is high prices. It's a big issue. You know, it's kind of red riding hood syndrome here. People making out the industry to be the big bad wolf and on top of that you know you would get a nice increase in pay as i'm sure most of us all know when you move to oil field areas you get a, a nice little bump in pay after him and i having five margaritas over at the cork and pig i called my boyfriend and i was like hey do you want to move to texas and he was like yeah when when are we moving <laughs> and honestly we moved about a month after that this oil and gas industry i've met some of the best people i've ever met in my life doing this Time now to work hard on the Swan Energy phone lines. George Stark, Cabot Oil and Gas. Bill DeRosier, Cabot Oil and Gas. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us here today, Cabot Oil and Gas. Where are you guys located? And uh, George, why don't you go ahead and take that one? I'll just I'll just go ahead and pick, pick you know randomly somebody to start the interview off. George, go ahead. Yes, sir. So Cabot's headquarters are in Houston, Texas. But today, we're coming to you from Pennsylvania. My office is I'm in the Pittsburgh office, where about 100 of us work. 
But overall, our operations are in Susquehanna County. Billy, take it away. Yeah, up in Susquehanna County, our operations, we have about 80, 85 people working in the field right now, and we employ hundreds, if not close to 1,000 contractors, suppliers, vendors, uh, working up here in the northeast part of the Marcellus Play, Susquehanna County, some beautiful country. We call it the endless mountains up here. I've always referred to the Marcellus as Ohio, Pennsylvania, and parts of New York. Uh, what, what, what states or what region do you guys refer to the Marcellus as? I suppose even down to the Virginias, huh? No, I think you're correct. I think when you think about it, it's West Virginia, Ohio, and then Pennsylvania. The sad part is we know it bleeds into New York, but poor policy in New York has left those folks stranded without able to access their own minerals. And then Cabot, when we talk about Susquehanna County, we are right on the border of New York. Okay. So between us and Binghamton, New York, you know, less than 40 miles well, separate I us. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on because a lot of times I'll, I'll talk with Tom Shepstone of Natural Gas now. He's right there on the border as well. And he's been pretty vocal about... Uh, New York and some of the direction they're going and even Pennsylvania flirting with certain areas to try to transition or get rid of uh, the oil and gas activity like New York's doing. Do you, do you guys have an update for me? I mean, he's the guy that normally gets a little bit uh, uh, opinionated. You guys are oil and gas companies, so I don't expect that out of you. But uh, since you brought it up, uh, you got an update just kind of of the political vibe and what the oil and gas acceptance rate is like up there? So if you think about it right now, here we are, February 9th, and it is a cold day out. I think the Susquehanna <laughs> temperature is probably minus two. So the answer is the vibe is, Jason, very positive for natural gas. Because in Pennsylvania, you're, you're, what you're paying at the burner tip is an inexpensive amount. When I look at those folks in New England, they're paying three, four, five, six times what we're paying for natural gas. So the Pennsylvanians that I talk to are happy to have exploration and production, and they see it in the abundant, affordable natural gas that we produce. Billy, I think you've got a better handle on actually some of the pricing that you're seeing out there. Yeah, we certainly are. Um, and, and I hate to say I'm cliche, but uh, the, the industry, in some regards, has been its own worst enemy because of the prolific nature of the Marcellus, the Utica Shale, the Bakken in North Dakota, the Permian down in Texas. So there have been times where our pricing has been um, weak, as we like to say in the industry, or, or light. Uh, but definitely one area of the country that continues to see a disparity between the two areas is, in fact, New England and New York. And a lot of that has to do with political decisions, not um, not the prolific production of the Marcellus, you know, 20, 30, 50 miles away. But as George had alluded to, here we are coming off the heels of a snowstorm, prolonged cold temperatures up here in Pennsylvania. It's actually snowing right now as, as, as we're talking on this interview. Um, and we're starting to see pricing uh, expand in certain areas. So up in the Boston market area, I was looking at it earlier, uh, they're seeing anywhere between $5 and $11 per MCF. So that's the same uh, MCF, the same volume of gas that George had just mentioned. And we're seeing our gas prices 
somewhere in the $2.40 to $3.20 range. So you can see, as George alluded to, two, three, four times the volume uh, or the cost per, per MCF. And that's not even in a prolonged cold period. If this polar vortex type weather continues, we get hit with another snowstorm and our inventories of natural gas start to decline, areas in New York and New England that have made poor policy decisions will see that disparity grow even further. That's interesting. Uh, I do want to ask you guys about some of the uh, legislator uh, legislature activity, specifically Act 66. I know you guys are working on that, but before we get into that, since you brought up the pricing, how in New England they're paying more than what you guys are paying, and it has to do with regulations and, and even to, I wanted to ask about infrastructure. And anytime I hear about Anything more than $3 when it comes to MCF with natural gas, I think of regulations and infrastructure because when we're paying $3 over here in America, in the United States, over in China, they're paying like $8, $9, $10. And over in Germany and in France, they're paying $15, $16. China's got to do a lot with their different regulations, but when you start getting into Europe, it has to do a lot with their old infrastructure. You know, we've got a lot of pipelines that are, are probably need to be replaced, and we've got climate activist groups that don't want new pipelines. I don't understand why the climate activists are protesting the new pipelines. They should be protesting the old ones and the old bridges and the old infrastructure that needs to be replaced. But that's just another, an, another argument for another day. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you guys have going on with infrastructure. Because you, we, before the interview, you said you guys are making your – hey, right now on natural gas more than oil. So with natural gas, boy, that's all about infrastructure to keep the price down, isn't it? Well, Jason, let me just, and I'll put a, I think a fine point on this because Cabot's operations in Susquehanna County started 12 years ago. So think about this. Prior to 2000, there was no, zero, no natural gas being produced in Northeast Pennsylvania Today, Cabot only operates in Susquehanna County, and we are the nation's fourth largest producer of natural gas. So in that quick of a lifetime, we've gone to being the fourth largest, Pennsylvania's second largest producer of natural gas, and you hit upon it. It is a short drive from our operations to New England, and we had an opportunity to put in new infrastructure that the governor of New York stopped. And that, again, gets back to poor policy planning. And now they're paying four to five times what we're paying, just less than 200 miles away. And it's sad because they end up importing into the port of Boston energy for Americans from someplace else, where here we are, again, a short day drive away with the most prolific wells, clean burning natural gas. We ought to be fueling our brethren right in New England, yet the climate activists, as you said, and others have said, no, we're putting up a roadblock to new infrastructure. And it's just maddening because they want to go towards a renewable future. We support a all above natural or i'm sorry energy option there's a place for wind and solar as well as nuclear and coal 
but you can't rely upon one. And then when Bill and I did a, an actual survey and a, an analysis, the amount of gas that we can move in a pipeline would take all of the five boroughs in New York to be covered with solar panels. All five boroughs covered. It's ridiculous when you think about how plentiful and clean burning Cabot's natural gas is, and we can't get it into New England. And Jason, if I could just interject there, building off of what George has said, and uh, I challenge people on this all the time, natural gas is a is a partner fuel, right? And we should we should embrace it, not vilify it. But if you go on to PJM.com, that's our grid provider here in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, West Virginia, uh, parts of Virginia, Maryland, uh, New Jersey are in this grid. It's one of the largest grid providers in, in the world. Um, today, as we're recording this interview here, one uh, 112,000 megawatts of power being consumed. And of that, 4,000 megawatts is renewables. And of that 4,000, only about 1,000 is wind and 1,000 solar. So we're talking less than 1% of all the electricity we're consuming is coming from solar and wind. The yeoman share of it's coming from gas. Almost 40% of that is natural gas, coal, and nuclear in the States. And that doesn't even count people who are hooked up to use natural gas to heat their home. Like my house here runs off of natural gas. So again, natural gas can't be replaced immediately and it shouldn't be replaced immediately because it's a it's a fuel that's here it's ready it's being locally produced and i'll just end with i feel much more comfortable seeing things developed in our country using our regulations our oversight than seeing stuff being built around the world and or being shipped to us because you don't know how that energy source has been produced you don't know how that product has been produced but i know that in pennsylvania the natural gas that cabot's producing is some of the most responsible, affordable, accessible, and abundant fuel sources we have available to us today. We had a news story on yesterday about uh, some legislature down in uh, New Mexico that was trying to do some banning of uh, federal lands and, and the water that, that comes from federal lands and et cetera. And, and anyway, they were doing banning, and they, they're trying to get – oil companies to use recycled water. And I, I brought up my issue of the banning. I, I, don't, I, I don't think legislators understand oil and gas companies when they, try to, when they try to dictate things. If you incentivize the oil and gas companies, now you're talking because the oil and gas companies, from my understanding, have never hid from the fact that they're, they're in business to make money. And they're, they're, they're a bottom line business and they'll give to the softball teams and the little baseball teams that need, you know, they'll, they'll be good, responsible capitalists and give back. But at the end of the day, if they're not making any money, well, it's, it's really hard to give back. Okay. And I saw you guys have an act 66 up in the Pennsylvania legislature that I was working on that has to do with uh, natural gas incentivizing. I thought that was kind of neat. And so I was kind of thought that was a good juxtaposition example of how at least there's some conversations now having to incentivize oil and gas companies to do these things that they want them to do as opposed to outright banning and forcing. And do, do you guys know what I mean by that? Uh, certainly, Jason. And I think you're, you're, you're touching on a, uh, 
a point that we've looked at here, and, and I think uh, we can dive a little bit deeper into. Act 66 was passed in the law in 2020 after about two years of navigating the legislative process here in Pennsylvania. And Act 66 was designed to incentivize the build-out of petrochemical and manufacturing opportunities that use dry natural gas. Uh, and the idea is that if you're going to come here, we're going to uh, incentivize you by coming here and, and giving you a tax credit for the use of dry natural gas produced here in Pennsylvania after you invest $400 million in building a facility and employ 800 jobs during construction or the operation of that facility. So again, I think a lot of tax credits and programs are too frontward facing. Hey, here's the money, go do this. And Pennsylvania took a different approach. They said, hey, we have the resources, we have the infrastructure, we have the wherewithal to attract these industries to this area. Let's get them here and let's reward them by coming here. And I guess the full circle to close out my thought here, Jason, is Pennsylvania is blessed with being an energy powerhouse for many, many years. Coal was where we were before. Now we're on to natural gas. But Pennsylvania has always had a long history of making things. Pennsylvania has been the state that made things. And now we have this opportunity to attract those industries here. So we're not beholden to, say, the Gulf Coast. We're not beholden to the Middle East or other parts of the world. There are things like fertilizers, uh, methanol, urea, ammonia, hydrogen, helium, things that we're talking about every single day that can be made here in Pennsylvania and be used either in Pennsylvania or in the country or shipped out around the world. And that's essentially what Act 66 is, is to try and get those industries to invest here. And it goes back to my earlier point. I'd much rather see those facilities built here brand new using best available technologies versus having to rely on other countries and Again, their lack of regulation, their lack of new technologies to produce these much-needed products. And I think that's only been further reinforced during COVID, as so many of these products I just mentioned are in demand because of COVID. And let me jump in there, Bill, because I think what you laid out for the last two years was critical, but it came to a head during the pandemic. Here we are. We're stuck. We can't get Clorox wipes because they're coming from overseas. But all the building blocks we have right here in Pennsylvania, and as we are known as the Keystone State, we're close to people. We've got the infrastructure, highways, rail, bridges to get product out. And I don't mean natural gas. I mean Clorox wipes, the things that you need, the PPE. So it really came together nicely to say we need to really look at reshoring, onshoring those businesses to come here because, as I mentioned, we're plentiful in natural gas. We've got the workforce. Let's incentivize those companies to come here. And again, people will have a concern about, are we building our future the wrong way? We're going to rely on plastics. During the pandemic, what did you need more of? I, every grocery store I would go to would have a plexiglass piece up between me and the cashier. The gloves. Everything that you need comes from our building blocks. So, again, this is that opportunity because what else did the pandemic wipe out? It wiped out jobs. And when the legislation was passed on Act 66, it was done in concert with the trades. The union saw this as an opportunity to build things here, again, in Pennsylvania. And 
oftentimes the natural gas industry and the organized labor, the trades, are on the same page because they know that building a petrochemical facility is going to employ them for years. So this is the upside. You build jobs, not just from producing the natural gas, but doing something with it. Why put it in a pipeline and send it to Canada or to the Gulf when we can do something right here in Pennsylvania that's needed? Well, two, two points, and um, I'll let either one of you grab this however you'd like. But uh, first one is the state of Washington you might want to check out this study. They did a study that uh, for refineries, and I think it was an Anadarko refinery in the state of Washington. But what they found was that for every job that was created in the refinery, it actually created 12 jobs in the community out of that refinery. So I'd imagine there'd be similar studies for uh, a natural gas refineries as well. But it just it showed how the the supply chain and the, and the distribution chain from a refinery actually builds communities with real economic value. No offense, Subway, but versus like a Subway, you know, Subway restaurant. Uh, second second part of that question, or second statement, I guess, is, uh, uh, Bill, I think you mentioned, or William, I think you mentioned dry gas. Is the, is the excuse my naivete, my na- na- naivete, but uh, is the Marcellus a dry gas play? And I'll jump in here and George can add into it. I think it goes back to even how we started this whole interview when you were saying I thought of Marcellus, you know, more of Ohio and West Virginia. Uh, The Marcellus is two distinct plays. In the Northeast, where Cabot operates, is dry natural gas. So that's essentially pure methane. So think of that for uh, anything dealing with a burner tip, heating, electricity generation, transportation vehicles. In the southwest part of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, they have wet gas, which oh. is propane, butane, ethane. Uh, so it doesn't have anything to do with water. It's just a term that we use to define other uh, value-added products that come out of the same hole in the ground. And many people don't realize propane, butane, and ethane are the feedstocks for many of those plastic products George were talking about. So in addition to propane for gas grills and butane being in lighters, those two derivatives and ethane are used every single day around the world to make plastics. And and that just really shows the, the complexity and the diversity, really, when you're talking about the oil and gas industry. Uh, you know, not to name drop, we had... John Gibson, the uh, former CEO and chairman of One Oak on our program. And he that was the first time I had ever heard the difference between wet gas and dry gas. But down in Texas, they have more dry gas. And up in the Bakken, where they've got a lot of activity, it's, it's wet gas. And it's for those reasons you just named, you know, the different feedstocks. And so that, it's like, you have to tackle it as two different companies. You know, you'd think that a natural gas company could probably overlap, but if you're talking about one's a wet gas play and the other one's a dry gas play, my guess is is they'd be like two different, totally two different, I guess, angles. I don't know. I guess, do they overlap? (laughs) Jason, you you are absolutely correct. You have to look at them as two separate feedstocks, and if you're in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania from an economic development standpoint, you should be jumping up and down saying, not only in western Pennsylvania do I have the wet gas and we can do things with that, over here on the eastern side, we've got dry gas. 
we're pipeline ready. Like we come out of the ground and we can go straight into an interstate pipeline. We go straight to electric generating facilities from Cabot. And when you think about that, you've got the feedstocks to produce the PPE and the lowest cost electricity prices all fueled by natural gas. So again, you're correct. You gotta look at it from a company as two separate things. But what we get excited about is the opportunity for those in economic development to really market our Commonwealth, the state of Pennsylvania, in such a way that we have both. Move your facility here. Do it to Bill's point. The best, tightest regulations that we have, put your facility here, and within a day's drive, You've got Boston, New York, Philadelphia, D.C., down the coast. Are you guys still working on that Act 66? Do you need any assistance? Just talk to me about, you know, the, it, we're, we're, we're in a new, you know, a new day and age where the uh, regulations and, le- and, and legislative sessions seem to really kind of dictate more than the oil prices these days. The, the best news on that end, Jason, is Bill's point. The General Assembly passed it in the law. So it is now on the books in Pennsylvania. The thing that you can do through your podcast, your outreach, is making certain that companies looking to utilize natural gas know that they have a home in Pennsylvania. This is the piece that we really do need to sort of scream from the mountaintops. Look at the parameters. To Bill's point, there's no money given up front you got to spend $400 million, but on the backside, when it comes to your financing, you know what you're going to be able to book as a savings as it relates to the tax savings on the backside of this. Again, that's one of the reasons that we really want people to be aware of the existence of Act 66. It's the law of Pennsylvania, but now we've got to get more companies to be thinking, hey, I need to locate my facility in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and I'll just add off of what George was saying there. The beauty of it is it's already passed. It's ready to be used. The legislature in their in their foresight has the tax credit officially starting to take place in 2025, which gives companies enough lead time to build a facility and get it operational to take full advantage of that tax credit. But the biggest thing is just promotion of it. Uh, prior to this tax credit being passed, Pennsylvania was looked at as a high-tax state, a high-regulation state, and a high-cost-of-labor state. Well, the reality is now this tax credit, Act 66, uh, equalizes us with Ohio, West Virginia, and Texas. It, uh, it takes away some of those intrinsic benefits those other states have, and it allows us to focus on the really good benefits we have here, prolific, abundant, affordable, accessible natural gas and energy, but we have a ready-made workforce we have a infrastructure system that is not nearly close to capacity. We have old rail systems that are ready to be, uh, you know, uh, utilized. We have ports in Philadelphia that can move products around the world. So what I'm getting at is all of the benefits of the Gulf Coast can be found here in Pennsylvania, and they are here now. So let's take a real good look at diversifying where those companies build and operate. Let's land some of those projects here. 
And while we're doing it, just to, you know, give a nod to the to the environmentalists and the people that do criticize the work that George and I do, is let's also look simultaneously at the other opportunities to employ solar and wind at these facilities. Maybe carbon capture. Carbon capture. Hydrogen. I mean, that we could spend two more hours talking about the merits of how those projects work when natural gas is used as a partner, not vilified as the reason to, to, to go 100% over to that side. Well, we're definitely going to have to have you guys back on, that's for sure. I mean, I, I've, I've got a couple more questions, but I'm looking at the, at the clock today, and so we're going to have to have you guys back. Like uh, One question I'll let you guys think about for next time is uh, the former head of FERC uh, federal, uh, is it an energy regulatory energy commission? Regulatory commission. Yeah, Tony yes. Clark. Um, he's, you know, he's. He, I went to high school with him, so I, you know, I've I've known him for a long time, and went fishing with him for crying out loud. And so he was uh, on the program a number of times, and he'd always say, "Jason, natural gas is not only the foundation of the future, but it's also the wild card." And I always thought that was such an interesting way to look at it because it's true. Is that there's there's no matter how you slice and dice it, no matter how much fear mongering you want to attack, no matter how many how much uh, press Tesla gets, it ain't going anywhere without natural gas. America, Absolutely. the the planet, the globe ain't going anywhere without natural gas. From the plastics that we need for our PPE to the to the rubber and tires that that Tesla wants to drive with his with his EVV cars to his big old battery plant in, in uh, Nevada, which 90% of it's powered by natural gas, by the way. But then it's a wild card. And the wild card's interesting because it's going to get used in a lot of different ways. It's going to be used for pros and cons and everything else. And and that, that's where I find it really interesting. So um, I look forward to the conversations, guys. I think this is uh, what you guys have going on is fantastic. You're we talked a lot about the Marcellus and the Utica and the East Coast today, but you mentioned you guys have other locations. So kind of uh, give us a little bit of a recap of Cabot Oil. You got you mentioned Houston you're headquartered out of. So if you guys are in any other plays or anything like that. The benefit, Jason, is we're all in on the Marcellus. We, we understand the strength of the Marcellus, so we end up selling out of Midcon. We're out of Colorado. We're out of uh, uh, Texas. And we double down, put all those dollars into Pennsylvania, into the Marcellus. So we really see, we're bullish on what we see ahead of ourselves here, understanding how close we are to people, the electric generation side, the opportunity for petrochemicals. So uh, again, I can't thank you enough for having us on this show. I'll throw this out past you also. Next time we get on next month, I'd love to talk about innovation and technology. Because, again, I think it's something that gets overlooked in our industry because we evolve so fast. It's got to stop at times and look back and think, man, I can't believe we've done all that. And I think it would make a fast show next time. I, I can't wait. In fact, I'll even fold in Stephas out of the Bakken. There, you, you mentioned uh, PMJ earlier, and they're doing a lot with them. And, you know, you talk about innovation. Well, it, it all goes back to the grid. And if you guys got this working relationship to help the people understand exactly how the light switch works, man, I'm all for it because we, we, we need to educate the people. Here's my fear, guys, is that what is happening right now in the bigger conversation is what happened to the farmers is that the grocery store took out the farmers where everybody thought, oh, who needs farmers? We'll just go to the grocery store to get our food. 
And that's what's happening to the energy worker, that the light switch is replacing them, where the average person doesn't even understand that you need an industry to power the light switch. So I appreciate you guys coming on to help educate. You know what I'm saying? We, we would gladly <laughs> welcome that opportunity, because to your point, there is a manufacturing, an agricultural, and an energy illiteracy in the U.S. of A. that we're focused on trying to fix. Because to your point, your, your meat doesn't come from Walmart, your power doesn't come from the light switch. It has to be manufactured. So absolutely appreciate that opportunity to spend more time talking about this. Music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. with Jason Speece. Thank you for joining the program today. You know, I, I come from an oil background. My family's been in the oil and gas industry for 60 years. I, I think the thing with the younger generation is the younger generation has pretty much bought into the climate change phenomenon. They really believe everything that people tell them. We just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us and especially you, Jason. Without, without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. So I, I don't want to be real critical of them because being a guy who's, you know, dad has several small businesses and, and coming from that sort of small business background, I get it. I mean, the, the, the operators here were put in a real bad position by the state of North Dakota. I'm glad that we've got people like you to pay attention and bring us information on stuff like this. Prices can't go any lower for services. I, I, they're, they're too low right now. I, our margins are in the single percentage point if we're lucky. Man, we're not lucky that often. You're exactly right. ESG is becoming more and more important to shareholders. I can see for my 20 companies, they take it very serious. It makes perfect sense, and I thought you had a really good show last week. Jason, I love your inquisitive questions, because you you ask important questions that, that lead to the most important truths. Hey, this is Kevin Kramer, representing proudly the state of North Dakota in the United States Senate. I'm Jason Spies, who's like the best energy interviewer in the world. No one does an interview like Jason Spies. We all like living the crude life, so. <laughs> the Crude Life with host Jason Speece. My name is Jason Speece, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer in just a moment, part of our exclusive interview with U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer right here on the Crude Life Daily Update. With regard to Paris, um, which I'm glad you asked about, and I, I, Jason, one thing, one thing I do love about your interviews is because you've thought this stuff through. You're, you're, you're both curious, but you also have a perspective. And 
flip the script is a pretty good description, I think, of what you're reading from me in my opinion piece that I wrote for the, the uh, I wrote it for Fox News, actually. That's who ran it first, and then since then it's gotten up out a long ways. I was, it was interesting when, when um, President Trump became president, I actually sort of joined forces a little bit with, at the time, Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka, and then um, the Secretary of State at the time, uh, saying, you know, Mr. President, maybe we ought to think about this Paris Climate Accord. Now, clearly, we couldn't go in under the same, or we shouldn't stay in under the same conditions that Barack Obama created. I mean, okay, China, you're the biggest polluter in the world. We want you to continue to pollute and grow your pollution footprint for the next, you know, 15 years, um, and we'll continue to reduce ours. That, that, that just makes zero sense. The thing we'll always remember about the Paris Climate Accord is that the emission standards that are set in Paris are, 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 are voluntary. So even so, whatever you agree to, it is only voluntary. It's just—it's really an accord. It's not so much—it's um, not so much a, a court, if you will. But by recusing ourselves from it, and this is what I said to the president at the time: recusing ourselves from it, we diminish our opportunity to advance our interests on the global stage. And the reason I believe that's important is because so much of the innovation, regardless of what you think about climate. Much of the innovation that will that will diminish and, and, and you know minimize a carbon footprint will be invented and is being invented in places like the EERC in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and other places in the country. Things like carbon capture, utilization, and storage. To listen to the full-length exclusive interview with U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. While you're there, be sure to join our ever-growing army of social media energy enthusiasts on Facebook, YouTube, even the Twitters. Go to thecrudelife.com, click on the social media tab. From the staff here at the Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard.